So John 18, 1 through 14. We hear God's word. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, but Jesus often met there with his disciples. Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Now when he said that, said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Then he asked them again, Whom are you seeking? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled which he spoke, Of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's servant, and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? Especially verses 1 through 11. That's our focus this morning. And notice that when we focus on Jesus' arrest, it's his arrest for your sake, for our redemption, for our salvation. So that's really the, uh, the, the focus here. I think that most of us know that in almost any war, any kind of war in our world, the idea, the goal is usually to take out, to take out the leader, and when you take out the leader, what happens to the kingdom? What happens to the country? It falls. It falls. And understand, here in John 18, this is Satan's aim. Take out the leader, you kill the church. That was his aim here. And this war goes way back to the beginning of Scripture. You know, I really, really recommend, you know, Genesis 3.15, a key verse in the Bible, good to memorize it, Genesis 3.15. It started already way back then, that war. The war or the battle between the two kingdoms, between God and Satan, between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness, between Christ and Satan, between the church and the world. Who's the head of the one? Who's the head of the kingdom of light? Christ. Who's the head of the kingdom of darkness? Satan. After Adam and Eve, that's our first parents, after they surrendered the kingdom of God, and they did that by their own disobedience, deliberately, willfully, in rebellion against God, we put ourselves under, all mankind put themselves under the reign, under the kingship, you could say, of, of Satan. But God, you know, is so gracious. He gave a promise. He made a promise. And although Satan, the serpent, would strike, what? Christ's heel, he would strike 
the heel of Christ. Ultimately, Jesus will win the victory. How? By crushing the head of Satan. And that's what we see here in John 18, 19, and 20. The battle, which has been raging on for centuries, this is the, really the main battle in the world, is between Christ and Satan. That battle has been raging on for centuries throughout the world, comes to head, culminates uh, to a head-and-head conflict. It culminates in a head-to-head conflict between Christ and Satan. Christ, the seed of the woman, and Satan, the seed of the serpent. And now you see in John 18 19, Satan is fuming angry, he's furious, and he's striking at the heel of Christ. He's striking at the heel of Christ. And by killing Jesus, he thinks he's going to take out the leader. And hence the kingdom of God will fall. That's Satan's aim. But you know the amazing thing about God's grace? God uses Satan's strategy to gain salvation and an eternal kingdom for God's people. Even Satan right, is in the hands of the sovereign God in his sovereign kingship. And so what we see here in John 18, Jesus is arrested. He's bound. And Satan seems to be winning the war through and through. Through the, through the mobs. Does Jesus have weapons? Jesus has no weapons. He has no defense. And when Peter tries to defend him, what does Jesus do? No, 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 Peter. This is not the way. Lay down your sword. Jesus rebukes him. And now John wants us to see the glory the glory of our king. He wants to see, see the glory of our king in his arrest. That's what he wants us to see. A glory that we can only see by faith. The world doesn't see this. They just poor pity Jesus. Oh, how can someone do this to Jesus who is so innocent and so pure and the son of God? But the church sees something more. They see the glory in it. The followers of Christ see the glory in it and they see something beautiful and what God is doing for his people who need salvation. And so we see the glory in Christ's humiliation for our salvation in three ways. Notice what happens here. We see three things. First of all, it's Jesus, not Satan, but Jesus directs. He carries out his own arrest. Jesus is in charge. Jesus is the king here. He directs his own arrest. And in directing his own arrest, what do we see second? He protects his own from arrest. We see that in verses 7 through 9. And finally, we see Jesus in his arrest obeys perfectly the will of his Father. But first of all, Jesus directs his own arrest. You see, the battle lines are so clear here between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. Christ is here with his disciples, you could say his church, on one side. And the forces of darkness, the forces of wickedness, are on the other side. Who are they? The Roman soldiers, the officers who were sent by the chief priests, and the scribes, or the Pharisees, they come from the Jewish background. So you have the Romans, you have the Gentiles, you have the Jews. 
Right? The entire world represented going against Christ. And then you have Judas. Who's Judas? He was a disciple. He was a follower of Jesus. But he turned against Jesus. What you see in Judas is Satan now against the Christ. What you see here is Judas joining the world now against the followers of Christ. But Jesus is, and he remains the master of this battle scene. Not his enemies. Let's be really clear. His enemies are not in charge here. But Christ in his sovereignty, God in his sovereignty, he's the one who's directing all the circumstances that lead to Christ's arrest. And there's two phrases, notice two phrases in verses 1 through 6 that really bring this out. Notice in verse 1, he went out. He went out. Right? Christ is leading the way. And then the second phrase you see in verse 4, and he went forward. He went out and he went forward. Christ is the one who's initiating his own arrest. Look at verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, it says, he went out. Jesus went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. There's a purpose. Christ went out. Jesus here is preparing for that divine moment. That moment for his own arrest for your sakes. See his love here. He leaves the upper room where he was instructing his disciples, where he was interceding for them before the Heavenly Father. And now he goes out with his disciples to the garden. Remember what garden that was? The garden of Gethsemane, the Garden of Gethsemane. And what was he doing in the Garden of Gethsemane? He went out to pray. His purpose was to pray. Jesus was in the Garden seeking to be alone with the Father. For what purpose? The Father could strengthen him. That he could strengthen him for this terrible ordeal and the judgment that was to come upon him on the cross. Remember his prayer in the garden? Father, let this cup pass from me. He struggled. Let this cup pass from me. Yet not my will, but your will be done. You can read about that in Matthew chapter 26. You know, the garden was kind of like a retreat place in the hills, you could say. A place where people could rest out and camp. Jesus would often go there with his disciples. And Judas was one of them. But Jesus went there. Why? Because it would be easy then for Judas to lead the truth and to find him. Think about that. Look at what verse 2 says, right? Judas was one of the disciples and Judas knew about this place. Christ goes there to pray, but also he's preparing himself for his own arrest. Who would ever think that Satan would use one from within the church You could say a fake disciple, a pretend disciple, to betray Jesus in order for the world to arrest him. Notice verse 5. 
Judah takes his stand. He doesn't take his stand with Christ. He takes his stand with the world. And it's really true. We either take our stand with Christ or with the world. There is no between. No in between. It's either with Jesus or against Jesus. We either stand up for him, stand with him, or we stand up against him. And Judas made his choice. You know the pain of betrayal in your life. Jesus can share that with you. Judas ate at the same table as Jesus did. He shared in the ministry of Jesus. He heard his teaching, heard his preaching. Jesus washed his feet. Judas preached himself. He was elected as treasurer of the church. And Jesus fulfills those words. Even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread, has turned against me. Think about the pain and humiliation of betrayal. If you ever felt that, know that Jesus himself went through it. That was his suffering. What do you see Judas doing? Jesus prepares by praying. How does Judas prepare? Oh, bring in the lanterns. Bring in the torches. Bring in the weapons. He's there as the guide. He's the one. He's the, he's the, the famous personality. The one who came from the church. And there he is as guide to lead the troops. To lead the officers. All to the Lord Jesus Christ. And they come with their lanterns and torches and weapons. Hey, wait a minute. It's Passover. And at the time of Passover, wasn't it full moon? It was very light outside. Why did they need the light? Why did they need the lanterns, the torches? Imagine for a moment. The torches. The lanterns. Who are they searching for? They're searching for the light of the world. Jesus is the light of the world. They don't see him. They don't recognize him. They use weapons to subdue whom? The Prince of Peace, the one who brings peace. Treated, they treat Jesus as if he were a dangerous criminal. Don't you think there's a little bit of exaggeration here when they come with all those weapons and lights and torches? Are they trying to make a point? Oh, watch out for him. He's a dangerous, he's a dangerous person, this Jesus. And you think about it. This is nothing new because the church of Jesus Christ today is often seen as dangerous. In what way? Well, for teaching and preaching that Jesus is the only way of salvation. There is no other way to the Father. That's considered dangerous. Uh, the Bible teaches, right, that marriage may only be between one man and one woman. That's considered a dangerous teaching. Could land you up in jail. Or it's dangerous to proclaim the whole word of God because, as you see in our society today, the word is increasingly being censored. There are certain things you may not say or certain things you may not teach or preach. So yeah, all, what, what comes clear here is the wicked hate the light. Now, brothers and sisters, we should be really clear here. We are what we are by the grace of God. If it weren't for the grace of God, we would be exactly the same. Our natures would be no different than the wicked who went against Christ. Our natures are no different. The only reason, the only 
the reason that counts for the difference is simply and purely the grace of God. How he pulled us from the, the clutches of Satan. And hence we stand by faith, don't we? In Christ. And we stand with him. You see Jesus in obedience. He went out into the garden. He prayed. He surrendered himself to his father. And then you see in verse 4, and he went forward. That's the second phrase. Jesus says, it says, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, whom are you seeking? It's interesting that in spite of the large army there, probably two, three, four hundred people, no one dares to seize him. They have no ground really to take him. They have no, he's totally righteous. He's totally innocent. They're afraid. No one walks up to Jesus to seize him. But what does Jesus do? He walks forward deliberately, openly. He's done nothing wrong. He stands right in front of the crowd. Jesus said earlier, they don't take my life from me. I lay down my life. I'm authority of my own life. I'm the one that lays down my life. I'm the one that gives my life. And I have the authority to take that up again. You see, Christ is sovereign. All this is in his hands. Jesus says in verse 4, knowing all things that would come upon him. You notice here, Jesus knew all things that were coming to him. He's God. He sees. He knows. Nothing is hidden from him. He knows all the suffering, the pain, the justice of God that was to fall upon him because of his love for you. So that we could escape the terrible judgment and curse and the punishment of hell forever. He knew all these things. And yet, in the midst of it, he goes forward. He goes forth to meet the world that was rejecting him. He didn't hide. He didn't hide in the bushes. He didn't flee persecution. They were coming to arrest him and kill him. They knew that. He knew that. The point is, you see the love of Christ. You see his heart. His heart for you. He is going to, this is his goal. He's going to accomplish redemption for you. And he faces the world. He faces the rejection. Because he loves. Because he wants to lay down his life and bring Life to us. You notice here, going forward, you witness two things about Christ. His courage and his majesty. Something that the church should always recognize today too. We may go forward with courage and with the majesty of Christ. First notice his courage. When they answer that they're seeking Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus says to them, I am he. He loves God. He loves you enough that he does not flee the world and his persecution. He openly proclaims himself. I am he. I am he. Calmly, resolutely, without anxiety. Because the truth has nothing to hide. The world has every reason to hide and to deceive and to mock and to kill. The truth has nothing to hide. He is the I am. He's God. He's the Son of God. 
And you know, the beautiful thing is, we live after those days of Christ's arrest, suffering and death and resurrection. Today, Christ gives that same courage to his followers by his Holy Spirit. Think of the apostles when they were under arrest. Later, when the Holy Spirit came upon the church. When they were under arrest, what did they say? We must obey God rather than men. Courageous in their confession. Christ was their confession. In the face of all opposition, in the face of threats. You know, our task today is to proclaim him, to proclaim Christ, to build his kingdom regardless of his opposition. I pray that this may continue to increase and grow among us. Also here in this place of Brampton. What is it that compels us to stand courageously, even if we face arrest? The love of Christ. Paul says the love of Christ compels us. That's the motivation. That's the encouragement. That's the goal, our love for him. We're willing to stand courageously. Witness Christ's courage. And that courage he gives to his followers later. But witness the other thing too here, his majesty, his glory. We read that when he said to them, I am he, what happened? They drew back and they all, I mean, four or five hundred people just fell to the ground. What, they had a heart attack? No. They see something of the power and the majesty of the one that they're about to arrest. They appear with weapons. What does Christ come with? His word. I am he. He simply comes with his word. You know, we should never doubt the power and authority of Christ's word. Because that's what unmasks all the fake news, you could say, and unmasks all the deception and the lies of the enemy. And that's what Christ is doing later. By his one word, what happens? They all fall into a pile. You can imagine (laughs) the weapons thrown all over the place and lanterns. It's amazing that they didn't all go on fire. They all fall in a pile. They fell before him. They realize they fall before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. It's a sign to them. The one they arrest is the King. He could have easily destroyed them by his divine power. But Jesus is not that kind of king, is he? He's the kind of king who lays down his life. Not like the kings of the world. Not like the prophets of other religions. He lays down his life for his own. By his power, he directs the powers of darkness to arrest him. You know those hands that arrest him? He made those hands. He made those hands. And those wicked hands that arrest him? He's the one that directs those hands to accomplish God's purpose because of his love for you. Because he wants the salvation for you. And you see here in verses 7 through 9, you see how Jesus shelters his own, (laughs) his own disciples? Because he's going to bear the wrath. He's not going to let them do it. He's doing it for them. He protects them from any kind of arrest, because he's going to take it upon himself. See verses 7 through 9? The disciples there, they're right in the front lines of the battle. The church, they're facing the hostile powers of darkness. 
They're scared. They're frightened. As we know a little later, they scatter. But you know, how will they ever have the power to overcome the powers of sin and darkness? They can't. They can't. Someone needs to do it for them. Someone needs to be arrested in their place. And that's why Jesus says, if you seek me, that's okay. But let these go their way. Let them go. What a, what a leader, eh? This is a true leader, a faithful leader. The one who's willing to let himself go. One who's willing to let himself die so that his people may live. What a, uh, a faithful leader we see here in Christ. Jesus is truly the shepherd of a sheep. And that's the way the church goes forward too. The leaders are willing to die for the sake of the people. Of course, not in the same way as Christ, because they can't atone for the sins, but Christ goes before his own. He gives his life life for them and in their place. And notice here, he does it all by himself. No one lifts a finger. No one is going to be arrested along with him. All alone, he must be arrested. All alone, he must be placed on trial and sentenced and crucified to death for our sins. His disciples cannot help him. There's no way we can contribute to our redemption. (laughs) We're not perfect. We need a perfect sacrifice. We need a a perfect one to be arrested. If we say, well, we'll we'll join Christ and be arrested with him in terms of accomplishing our salvation, it would spoil it. He alone is the only perfect sacrifice. And that includes offering himself in arrest. Arrested alone for our sakes. You notice in this way, his arrest is totally unique to him and his suffering. Unique to him and his suffering. He goes alone to rescue us from the power of sin and death and Satan alone in our place. Jesus will suffer a far greater death than we could ever endure because he takes upon himself the wrath of God for our sins. You want to see something here? What do you see here? You see a Savior who is far more willing to save us than we are willing to be saved. He's far more willing to save us than we are willing to be saved. As a matter of fact, while we were still sinners, while we were still living in rebellion, and wickedness. Christ so showed his love, far more willing to save than we would ever, than we are willing to be saved. Jesus protects his own from this particular arrest because this arrest has to do with our redemption. And Jesus gives us reason in verse 9 that the saying might be fulfilled. He said, of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. If they had been arrested, they would have all been lost at that particular time. Here you see John 17, verse 12 being fulfilled. Jesus prays that prayer in John 17. And now you see Jesus fulfilling that prayer. He protects his own from this particular arrest. You know, Jesus does not promise that Christians today will never be tested or arrested for their faith. Today. Today. 
Okay, but your safety today, your eternal security is secure through his arrest for you, through his death for you. Yes, we can be arrested today, but because Christ himself was already arrested for you in, in your place. And therefore, your eternal security is there. Your safety is there, is secure by trusting in his work for you and trusting in the fact that he was arrested for your sake and punished, suffering humiliation for your sake. You're safe. One writer puts it this way, Christ will hold the winds and the storms in his hands. He will not allow believers, however tested they may be, to lose their salvation in the days of battle. John 10, 28, Jesus says, And I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. And neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Do rest in his promises. Rest in them. There's, there's no hope anywhere else. The only one is the one who was arrested for you. So that you could have that eternal security. Those promises of Jesus. He's a trustworthy leader. One who's willing to lay down his life for you. You can trust him. He's faithful. He's true. Everything he says is true. His promises are sure and certain. Even when everything else fails in your life. You know, every person should ask God to do what? To take his life. And give it to Christ. I don't mean physically die. But ask God that he would enable you to give your life to him so that he can give it to Christ. We need to accept the death of Christ in our place in order to be saved. Christ is just as willing to receive and pardon as he was willing to be taken prisoner to bleed and to die. How can you be so sure of his protection no matter what happens? So often people think when bad things happen to them, oh, God must be punishing me. That's not what a believer should be saying. A believer in Christ knows that Christ took the punishment. It's done. But now we have the courage and the strength. And whatever storms, whatever ordeals we go through, we have the courage. We, have the, we are encouraged to stand firm in Christ. How can you be so sure of his protection? Just remember, when Jesus was arrested for us in our place, he wasn't carrying out his own will. A lot of leaders carry out their own will. A lot of kings just do their own thing. But Jesus was simply carrying out the will of his Father in heaven. He came to accomplish what the Father gave him to do. And that's what we see in verses 9 through 11. He obeys the will of the Father in his arrest. The soldiers come. They lay their hands on Jesus. They arrest him. Peter didn't understand that. <laughs> what, you see what Peter does? What does he do? It suddenly dawns on him, oh, they're taking my master as prisoner. To him, the hour was altogether the hour of the devil. But it was not the hour of the devil. It was the hour of God. It was God's hour. And Peter didn't understand that. What does Peter do? He takes his sword out of a sheath, probably a six-inch blade, and he just wings it at this, this man's name, Melchus. 
This man probably just moved his head on time. Otherwise, he would have just sliced his head in half. Peter's angry. How dare they take my Savior as prisoner? How dare they arrest him? And yet, good thing he moved his head because he just got his right ear cut off. What did Jesus do? Malchus is one of Jesus' enemies. What did Jesus do? He bends down, picks up his bleeding ear, and heals Malchus. Right? A friend of sinners. One who's willing to forgive to all who come to him in faith. Did Malchus come? We don't know. But Peter certainly had a word for, I mean, sorry, Jesus certainly had a word for Peter. Peter, don't you dare. Don't you dare take up a sword. You put it back in your sheath. That's where it belongs. You see, what was Peter trying to do? He was trying to stop Jesus' arrest. He did not have in mind the things of God. He was taking the side of the enemy, ultimately. Peter did not see how the arrest of Jesus was God's sovereign way of carrying out the plan of salvation for us. And that's why Jesus said, Peter, you put your sword in the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my Father has given me? You think, what is that cup that the Father gave him to drink? And we even think of cups, we think of juice, coffee, drinks. What is the cup that God the Father gave Jesus to drink? His wrath. The wrath that we deserve for our sin and rebellion and wickedness. Christ says, I'm drinking that. I'm taking, take, I'm taking care of that. I'm sheltering. I'm sheltering all who believe on me. I'm sheltering my people. I'm going to take that upon myself. I'm going to drink the cup. And I'm going to drink all of it. I'm going to drink all of God's fury. I'm going to drink all of God's wrath. I'm going to take it myself. In those words of Isaiah 51, 17, right? Jesus fulfills. You who have drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury. That's the cup. Jesus was going to face the ultimate punishment. The punishment of hell. The punishment that we deserve. The punishment of separation. Eternal separation, of course, in a moment. On account of our sin. The cup of God's fury for Jesus is what kind of cup for us? The cup of salvation. It's not the cup of fury. It's not the cup of God's wrath. Christ took that. But in his place, in exchange, he says, here's the cup of salvation. Think of those words of Psalm 116. What shall I render to the Lord? What shall I give to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will take up the cup of salvation. I will call upon the name of the Lord. No longer does Jesus pray that the cup may pass from him here. He now says, shall I not drink it, Peter, disciples? I'm sheltering you by doing this. I'm protecting you. I'm saving you. In the hour of his arrest, Jesus was standing for you firmly, courageously, lovingly, faithfully. He gave himself over to them. You see verses 12 through 14. 
He gave himself over to them. They took him. They bound him. Chains, ropes. He was bound so that all who trust on Christ for their salvation may be forever set free, forever set free from the bondage of Satan and the powers of sin. Unlike other leaders, Jesus did not gain a kingdom by taking life, by killing. But he gains a kingdom by giving his life so that you may have life, that you may share in the glory of his kingdom. By faith, do we not? Do you see the glory? The glory of Jesus' arrest? You have a faithful leader. You have a trustworthy king. You have a faithful savior. You serve a risen Lord. Do we ever to doubt? No matter what comes our way, stand firm. Stand firm. Show courage. Firm, be firm in the truth of God's word. Stand firm against the defeated. Yeah, those wicked powers are defeated today, but they still prowl around. But stand firm. Doesn't matter if you're arrested. Doesn't matter if your life is taken. Because Christ gave his life for you. The life he has given so that you can have that life forever. Stand in the light. He will never, ever let you down. That's the good news of his arrest. Amen.